Hello and welcome to the big short episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And we are doing uh, something we haven't done on Slate Money Goes to the Movies here on two, which is basically talk about it's not a documentary, but it's not not a documentary. It's it's a kind of true story. The Big Short, adapted by Adam McKay from the very, very true story written by Michael Lewis and put out in book form. And the man who brought it to us is Kurt Anderson. Welcome. Happy to be here. Kurt, welcome back. We will happily have you on to talk about absolutely anything or or nothing. Do you have something you want to plug? Sure. Everything I've ever done. Um, you know, the books are read, still selling. The podcasts are still available. So yeah, read just, Kurt's novels. They're fun. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you. And and one of them, the first one actually called Turn of the Century is, uh, you know, connected to this world a bit. So yeah, KurtAnderson.com, just gamble in my ooth. <laughs> it's not um, much of a gamble. Kurt, why bet. did you, why did you pick this movie? I almost never see movies more than once. So I thought, well, that was a good movie. And you hadn't done it on this program before. And I'd like <laughs> to see it again. It was one of the few ones left. Yeah. I'd like to see it again. And I remember it being pretty remarkable, pretty remarkably good. And I, you know, who knows, you know, eight years later, a lot of water under the bridge since then. You know, in addition to all of my feelings and thoughts about it then and now, again, from rewatching it, I, it was just a pleasure to rewatch it. So, so we will start right there. Um, coming up on Slate Money goes to the movies. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Kurt, tell me, like, how, what did you think of it the first time around, and did it hold up? Liked it, held up. You know, I, um, I hadn't read Michael's book uh, when I saw the movie. I have since read it. So there's that. And, and it was, you know, it was, I mean, 2014, we were still in recovery from the crash and the recession at that point. And, and uh, I remember it being just this extraordinary thing. I'm not sure I'd ever seen a f movie, a feature film that was simultaneously so didactic, <laughs> you know? Quite literally. Yes. And sophisticated about 
this subject in business and finance, which has always been my a hobby horse of mine about, you know, business in movies and TV, that it used to be so terrible almost all of the time. And indeed, one of the things that led me to try to do it kind of sort of better in uh, my first novel. But so that it was didactic and sophisticated and totally entertaining. I specifically remembered, and I think everybody talked about it at the time, is there's Margot Robbie in a bathtub talking about whatever credit default swaps or whatever. But I realized, rewatching it, I re- obviously I realized it then as well, that there's so much, the balance between fun and funniness and humor and Adam McKay jolly, jollity, to me is in perfect balance with this giant subject of systemic horror <laughs> that, that, that it tells. Mortgage-backed securities, <laughs> subprime loans, tranches. It's pretty confusing, right? Does it make you feel bored or stupid? Well, it's supposed to. Wall Street loves to use confusing terms to make you think only they can do what they do. Or even better, for you just to leave them the fuck alone. So here's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to explain. Basically, Louis Rainieri's mortgage bonds were amazingly profitable for the big banks. They made billions and billions on their 2% fee they got for selling each of these bonds. But then they started running out of mortgages to put in them. After all, there are only so many homes and so many people with good enough jobs to buy them, right? So the banks started filling these bonds with riskier and riskier mortgages. Thank you, Banjo. That way, they can keep that profit machine churning, right? By the way, these risky mortgages are called subprime. So whenever you hear subprime, think shit. Our friend Michael Burry found out that these mortgage bonds that were supposedly 65% AAA were actually just mostly full of shit. So now he's going to short the bonds, which means to bet against. Got it? Now fuck off. Emily, you are, you are noddling, nodding along there. Do you, do you agree? That's a lot to ask me to agree with, but um, <laughs> let's see. Let's unpack. Movie is good. Definitely a good movie. Entertaining, which is, as listeners to Slate Money Goes to the Movies must know, that is my number one criteria. Am I being entertained here or not? Definitely an entertaining movie. Ryan Gosling is my favorite part. Every scene he's in, I'm laughing. And so are the characters, by the way. They're, he's making them laugh as well. Love it. Love when he bursts into the bathroom <laughs> and he's kicking guys out of the bathroom because he's on the phone. Just perfect. Margot Robbie in the bathtub, naked, explaining stuff. I hate it so much. Like, And Selena Gomez also with Richard Thaler in the casino. Like, I know Adam McKay is making this movie for boys and about boys. But, like, don't shove it in my face by telling me the only way I'm going to be interested in a financial concept is if I see an attractive naked woman in a bathtub talking about it. First of all, I'm a heterosexual woman or a cis woman, whatever. That's not appealing to me. But, like, if I was a man, and maybe you guys can agree or disagree, or someone attracted to her, why would I be listening to her explain something when I just be, like, staring at her naked? Like, why would it make... The concept more clear. I just hate it all so much. It's just this acknowledgement that this is not for me. I'm going to sort of 
come up with a third opinion here on this one, which is that Kurt is absolutely right that everyone talked about Mar- Margot Robbie in the bathtub, but that was what they remembered was Margot Robbie in the bathtub. And literally no one remembered what the hell she said. Exactly. Even That's what I just 30 said. seconds after she but finished saying well. it, let alone after <laughs> let, let alone after the movie was finished. The, yes. That like it didn't actually achieve didn't work. Okay. So it may or may not have achieved what he wanted it to achieve. Like there is a case to be made that he didn't actually particularly want or need the audience to follow what she was saying. And that he put that scene in there as a kind of sop to like, we need to at least pretend to explain to people what is going on. Maybe I'm not the right audience to not understand what is going on and what a subprime mortgage is, but I think the movie does a fine job without that scene explaining what that is. And it doesn't actually need the scene. It didn't matter. It was just a fun, it made the movie viral. And like you said, like you both said, that's what everyone wanted to talk about. So that was good for the movie, right? It was good PR for the movie, essentially. Well, I think it was good for the viewer experience. You know, to me, and first of all, I watched it in 2014 and again last night with my wife, who I didn't quiz her specifically about whether that (laughs) she didn't like it or get it, but I don't think she was in any way find it objectionable. To me, what it does, it's not about, oh, my gosh, Margot Robbie, Bobby, no, I'm looking, no, I'm blow. <laughs> it says early on, very early on in this film that this is a weird movie that's going to break the fourth wall and do all these kooky things in entertaining ways. I think that's what it does more than, blah, 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 boom, look at this girl. I don't think it's so much about that, or at least it wasn't for me because I'm a sexless old man at this point. Or I, I, I see. It's, I think it had this sort of cinematic sensibility role. Really, I, I do. And 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 they say in this very funny, didactic, you know, bright Brechtian way. Here's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to explain. That is a line that Ryan Gosling, I guess, says. So I found that funny, you know? And then they do Anthony Bourdain with a great uh, explanation of how these mortgage-backed securities are the equivalent of using old fish in a stew to hide the rotten fish, which is fantastic. A collateralized debt obligation. It's important to understand because it's what allowed a housing crisis to become a nationwide economic disaster. Here's world-famous chef Anthony Bourdain to explain. (laughs) Okay, I'm a chef on a Sunday afternoon setting the menu at a big restaurant. I ordered my fish on Friday, which is the mortgage bond that Michael Burry shorted. But some of the fresh fish doesn't sell. I don't know why. Maybe it just came out. Halibut has the intelligence of a dolphin. So what am I going to do? Throw all this unsold fish, which is the triple B level of the bond, in the garbage and take the loss? No way. Being the crafty and morally onerous chef that I am, whatever crappy levels of the bond I don't sell, I throw into a seafood stew. See, it's not old fish. It's a whole new thing. And the best part is they're eating three-day-old halibut. That is a CDO. You know, I just found it amusing and, and telling me it's an amusing movie. So my, my problem with the didacticism is actually substantive less so on the margot robbie scene and certainly not on the anthony bourdain scene which i think was good and correct as you say but there are a couple of other scenes which are 
much more problematic. One is when Ryan Gosling brings out his Jenga tower. Um, <laughs> now, this one's a bit weird because uh, Ryan Gosling is playing le- a real person, Greg Lippmann, at Deutsche Bank, although they changed the name for reasons we can only begin to speculate about. And, you know, if you are Greg Lippmann walking into a hedge fund office and selling this trade, the last thing you will ever do is, like, pull out a Jenga tower as a prop and start pulling things out. Like, you know, like, you do not need to explain to a bunch of extremely well-paid hedge fund managers, you know, what a what a CDO waterfall is. They, are, they all know that perfectly well. So that, that scene is weird to me because, precisely because... It's not presented as artificial, but precisely because it is presented as part of the action of the movie, um, and mainly because it's just deeply wrong. The way that the AAA tranches are at the top of the tower, and the single B tranches are at the bottom of the tower, and that if a few of the single B tranches fail, then the whole thing collapses and the AAAs collapse, is exactly 100% wrong. The whole point about these structures is that the Bs fail first and then the double Bs and then the triple Bs and they can all fail and then the single As and double As and triple As will remain. If you don't, if you make it seem like it's upside down, it's the other way around from that, you are literally making people believe the exact opposite to the way these things were constructed and the way these things work. So I feel like the didacticism, you know, is... Um, what's the word? Forgivable if it's at least telling, if it's at least trying to teach people the truth. If it's trying to teach people something that is false, I have a much bigger problem with that. And then the Selena Gomez scene, um, is almost even worse than that because it, if you watch it carefully, it explains why the entire premise of the film is deeply flawed. And the whole movie that we're watching is is just very um like unreliable in a deep and fundamental way. And we can we can talk about that. But Yeah, what yeah. do you mean? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> just tell us. So now. okay. <laughs> so this was my problem with Michael's book, and this is my problem with the movie, is the idea that the there was this terrible system out there with people buying and selling ninja mortgages, and it was all going to end in tears, and a few zig where everyone else zag types could see the truth where everyone else was blinded and they um put on some trades which first of all looked foolish but then looked genius and they all made lots of money and good for them but it's still bad that the world collapsed that's the big narrative of the book and of the movie but if you listen to what selena gomez is saying quite carefully what she's saying is that she's sitting at the poker table or the roulette table or whatever wherever she is in the casino. She's making a relatively small bet. 
And then a bunch of people behind her are making much bigger bets. And a bunch of people behind them are making bigger bets still. And we get this in the scene with um, Wing Chow in the casino where um, Steve Eisman is having dinner with Wing Chow, although neither of them are named in the movie, again, for reasons. And Steve Eisman goes... Um, like if you have a fifty million, if you have fifty million dollars of bad mortgages, how much, you know, in CDOs is can be built on that? And Wing Chow goes like a billion dollars, and Steve Eisman's mind is blown. But the point here is that the edifice of derivative trades, the zero sum bets, referencing the subprime market, was orders of magnitude bigger than the subprime market itself. That if the subprime market had just collapsed on its own without all of these bets being made on it, that would have been bad, but it wouldn't have brought down the entire global economy. What brought down the entire global economy was this huge edifice of synthetic bets that were built on top of the subprime market. And this is where the entire book and movie become problematic, is that the subprime bets the synthetic bets that are built on top of it only exist because people like Greg Lippmann and Steve Eisman and Michael Barry made those bets. Without those people, none of that could have happened. All of these are derivatives. All of these are zero-sum bets. You need someone on both sides. If you don't have someone on the other side, on the bearish side, betting against these bonds, none of those securities could have been issued. It was the fault of the supposed heroes of this movie that the financial crisis happened. Well, that that's I'm glad you explained that so clearly. First of all, Felix, I mean, you obviously know way too much about this world, and both of you probably do, for it to be taken as the purely successful piece of entertainment that it is. But that aside, so what if the if Michael's book and the and Michael's book does a bit, but certainly the movie didn't say well, these these guys are just symptomatic of the this ultra derivative exotic financial invention problem. They're not heroes. They just sure, but you know the fact that the movie did not hit that beat in the end in some big way. It's not a failure. It's just it's a storytelling decision about like you know these guys are not necessarily heroes. And the the Ryan Gosling character says, "Well, I, I'm not a hero." They says that to the camera in the film. So I don't see that as a giant problem. I thought you were going to go somewhere else with your erudite and learned explanation that would make me go, oh my gosh, this is badly wrong in ways I didn't even realize. Whereas to me, you're just saying, oh, it, 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 I, as, as a super knowledgeable person about this world and, the, and, 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 and you know, I am going to bring my entirely gimlet-eyed, cynical view to this thing and tell it like it is what you've done. But I don't think that invalidates the way this movie, this the story was told uh, in this film. So the way the story is told in the film, I mean, let, let me, let's just be very clear about this. And, and we can boil it down to that one scene over dinner, right? Where, where Greg Lippmann is watching from a far table where Steve, where Steve Eisman is having dinner with Wing Chow, right? And, the unambiguous message of that scene is that 
Steve Eisman is the force of like truth and righteousness, and I Wing Chow is the, the characters' names or the actors' names. Felix, I mean, to give people a fighting chance. Steve Carell. Okay, so Steve Steve Carell <laughs> slash Mark Baum's slash Steve Eisman. That that go. person. Thank you. Is is the the cynical avatar of truth and right, righteousness, and the slimy guy who runs. CDO portfolios in New Jersey, who he's having dinner with, who's never named in the movie, but is based on a CDO manager named Wing Chow, who actually sued Michael Lewis for libel and lost. That he is the avatar of everything like greedy and evil. So let me get this straight. The bank calls you up. They give you the bonds they want to sell. They give you clients. They give you money to run your business. Give you fat fees for doing so. But you represent the investors? Is that right? Yeah. But we're not in the Merrill Lynch building. Okay. Where we're are in you? New Jersey. You're 20 minutes away. Well, five visa helicopter. Okay. It's funny, huh? That's hilarious. Whereas in fact, Wing Chow represents the Norwegian banks who are placing their money in supposedly safe securities and were not being evil at all. They were just trying to keep their money safe. And Steve Carell represents the high finance Wall Street types who took a bad situation and made it a hundred times worse by layering up a whole bunch of derivatives on it. Again, as somebody who is when it comes to important historical events like, say, John F. Kennedy's assassination, I am scrupulous about what do you think you're doing, Oliver Stone, telling this false story this way? In this case, I, I entirely accept the the degree of fictionalization that goes on here, including the fact that, of course, all of, as you're suggesting, all of the characters, except, I think, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Uh, Burry, the, the Christian Bale character, uh, are not given, their real names are not used because their life rights weren't bought, or, as you say, for whatever reason. So that's already saying this is fiction. These are not these guys. And of course, in, in this, in if you're going to tell this story, if unless you're going to tell it in a much darker way where nobody's good, you know, some of them are gonna be better than others, and you're gonna you're gonna tip the scales to make the Steve Carell character better. But by the way, he was kind of a jerk. I didn't like him. <laughs> Adam McKay is the guy who directed the very first episode of Succession. He is executive producer of Succession. He is perfectly capable of making a movie where everyone is bad and no one is good. He chose uh, not no, to do No, 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 no. I'll stop you right there. A two-hour movie is a very different beast in terms of how to write it, how to sell it, everything else, than the first episode of a 50-, 80-episode series. It just is. I think maybe there's a, a bigger picture issue at play here, because I was doing my reading about this, and Greg Ipp had a good piece in the journal many years ago about this, pegged to the movie, is what happened in the financial crisis about bad actors or a bad system populated by good and bad actors all acting in their own self-interest. And probably it's the bad system explanation that makes the most sense. But when you write a book, especially if you're Michael Lewis, you're not going to write a book about the bad system without finding the characters 
who can act as the avatars and help you explain and actually keep people interested in a narrative. Same with a movie. Like you can't have a movie about a bad system that's actually interesting unless you populate it with interesting characters. And because it was a Hollywood movie, the characters have to be kind of heroic or whatever, iconoclastic or however these these guys are being portrayed. So, I mean, like you're not wrong, Felix, but like it's Hollywood, dude. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Should we say what the movie was about even a little? Because we haven't yet. And the I, wanna... I believe it. So, so, okay. So this book grew out of a long article that Michael wrote for the late magazine Condé Nast Portfolio, where I was working at the time. And it was his attempt to do a crisis story. And he found these great characters, and then eventually he expanded it into to, to book length. And it was Michael's attempt to basically do what Michael does, which is explain whatever it is you want to explain through telling people stories. And so he found these these stories that he wanted to tell, and he's like, if I if I can if I can bring you in and get you invested in the stories of these individuals, then that's going to be my way of making you understand what happened in the global financial crisis and he 100 percent succeeded in bringing us in and making us care about these individuals and this is you know this is kind of my like in in all of his books the central characters are you have like a rooting interest in them they're, they're not like problematic anti-heroes so much as they are like you're you're rooting for them and you want them to win and they're struggling against the odds and then they win in the end you know that kind of thing and and that's what happens in this book that you have these heroes struggling against the odds and winning in the end and then through the eyes of these heroes who are struggling against the odds and winning in the end you can begin to understand what happened in the financial crisis i i haven't read greg ipps column on this but the fact is that the financial crisis was so big and so global and so multifaceted and involved so many different moving parts that that project is always going to be partial at best. And Michael would be the first to, to, to concede that, right? So he's concentrating on one part of it, which was the subprime loans and the, um, and the CDOs that were made up of subprime loans. Um, and then he kind of flicks at the way that when they all failed, that caused Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns to fail and 
you know, he doesn't quite explain that mechanism. And then he very, very quickly says, oh, yeah, and by the way, like Spain and Italy and Greece are all like looking bad as well. And we don't even begin to understand what was going on there. But that little part of it that he's trying to explain, um, you know, we can talk about whether or not he actually succeeds at the end of the book in explaining that little part of it. I think we can also agree that by the time it has been rung through the Hollywood machine and turned into a vehicle for Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt, like at that point, you come out of the movie with literally zero conception of what, how the financial crisis happened. Disagree. You know, I feel, Disagree. I feel like you, you get a better idea. You, do a, you get a much better idea of how the financial crisis happened by watching Margin Call than you would by watching The Big Short. Oh, I'm well. Well, don't don't put one child I love against another child I love a little more. <laughs> Please, come on. I try to talk about margin call on this show, but you've already done it. So, no, that's true. But that isn't the way one. If if that's what you're about, is rating movies according to their fidelity to fidelity. Ha ha. But they're 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 they're, they're absolute verisimilitude. Well, that's not the way I rate movies. You know. I want them to be over a certain line, and this one totally was for me. Apparently, it wasn't enough for you. But the idea that, you know, of the, I don't know how many people watched that movie, uh, 10 million, 20 million, whatever. You know, 90%, most of them, the large majority of them, are far more knowledgeable in a way that they could explain to, say, a child about what, about the financial crisis in this narrow, partial, you know, crude, all those problems you have with it way, then they would be otherwise. Just period, end of story. I, I, I so I, to me, it, it, it. Kurt, tell me, you watched this movie last night. You've watched yes. this movie within the past 24 hours. Yes. What was it that Margot Robbie was explaining when she was in the bathtub? Uh, you know, something. It doesn't matter. It was, it, and, 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 and by the way. You can't tell me because no one remembers what she there, said. Therefore, what, Felix? Therefore, what? I wasn't explaining it for me. Whatever she was explaining, the basics of, you know, uh, you know, cre credit default swaps or derivatives, whatever. It was something I already knew. So I, I was just, oh yeah, here's that famous scene, and and it's an incredibly quick scene, as opposed to Anthony Bourdain explaining, you know, just doing this metaphorical thing. They're not there. They're not there to annotate and explain really those things. They're there as amusing illustrations. However, what we skipped over and didn't talk about are the bits of expository explanation within the story. You find them unacceptable, like with the Jenga thing, and okay. But for most people, like, oh, I've seen it done worse. That's, that's for this incredibly, this set of complicated, abstruse things, financial concepts that are needed to be explained because they're at the heart of this film. That was an okay way to do it. And there are several other instances where, well, you know, the, the kid says to Christian Bale, like, oh, what's this going to happen, Mr. Dr. Burry? And then Dr. Burry has the excuse to s explain something because the kid has asked him. They do that a few times fairly well because how else are you going to do it in a movie, you know? And I see so many movies in so many different realms where where that kind of exposition is so terrible and so clunky. I thought they did a decent job. Yeah, I mean, I think Kurt's right. This is an entertaining movie, and we must judge it on that vector. We can't judge it on total accuracy and fidelity to, to get to the level of Felix's knowledge of the financial crisis, because that's not a fair 
metric to use at all. And I think if you come to the movie not knowing very much about financial crisis or what happened with subprime loans or especially those scenes in Florida with um, the two mortgage brokers bragging about how they just get immigrants signed up to subprime loans that are terrible and take advantage of them and how they think this is like a good thing. I thought that was really good. They were and they were great. That was a good scene. I will give you that. How many loans do you write each month? Yeah. About 60. Yeah. What was it four years ago? 10, maybe 15. Yeah, I was a bartender. Now I own a boat. <laughs> you own a boat. So how, how many of these are uh, adjustable rate mortgages? Well, most. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'd say about 90%. Yeah, the bonuses on those skyrocketed oh. a few years ago. Adjustables are bread and honey. So do applicants ever get rejected? <laughs> 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 Seriously? <laughs> Look, if they get rejected, I suck at my job. Well, even if they have no money? Well, my, my firm offers uh, ninja loans. Oh, yeah. No income, no, no job. You know, I just leave the income section blank if I want. Corporate doesn't care. These, these people just want homes, you know? And they, they go with the flow. Good for you. Your companies don't verify. If I write a loan on Friday afternoon, big bank is going to buy it by Monday lunch. Yeah, same here. Could you hold on a second? Yeah. I don't get it. Why are they confessing? They're not confessing. They're bragging. That was great. And it shows how, like, the, the villains are just idiots. <laughs> Gratuitous nudity notwithstanding, the Florida interlude was good from a sort of didactic point of view. I, I didn't have a problem with that. I even support the stripper explaining how she has six mortgages on six different homes. That was actually, like, fine. It's it fine was all just it so way. wonderfully okay. Floridian in its, you know, three and a half minutes, you know. And the woman driving the, the real estate broker, driving the car and being, we're just in a little gully. And then the stripper repeats, we're just in a little gully. I thought that was wonderful. Like, that was all great. Like... Maybe this isn't the perfect, you know, explanation for the crisis. And the perfect explanation for the crisis doesn't exist because it was so complicated, multifaceted, and in the end, inexplicably dumb, really, right? I mean, things got out of control. I mean, it's interesting that one of the consultants on the movie was Adam Davidson, who did that famous giant pool of money, Planet Money episode, which really did get everything right in a way that by necessity or whatever any any other reason like the the movie didn't so i mean if if you want if you want me to point to popularizations of explaining the financial crisis um which do a better job i feel like i can do that quite easily yes a non-fiction a non-fiction podcast over many hours did it did it Better it wasn't by that your many standards hours. Than, than a two-hour movie. One hour. Okay, whatever. But you know, I mean, it was a different. Judge things on their own terms. That's all I'm suggesting. Of what they are. Planet Money wants to be entertaining, but that's not their ultimate goal. Whereas, like a Hollywood movie, like the ultimate goal is, in fact, to be entertaining. And you're going to have to sneak in the other stuff. You're going to have to put ladies in bathtubs, I guess. Although I don't really think you have to. Um, I did. What did you think about the man renting the house in Florida? I feel like he's the one purely sympathetic character in the film because, yeah, the the guys doing the big shorts to me weren't very sympathetic. 
Um, but he's actually sympathetic. He's renting the house um, from the mortgage holder who put the mortgage in the name of a dog or whatever and isn't paying it anymore. And then at the end of the film, the guy is pictured like packing up the car with his kids and obviously is now homeless. He is like the one sympathetic person, right, in the film. It's it's interesting who you choose to write the books about and make the movies about. I thought he, I thought that was smartly done and, and not overdone and not overused and just smartly done to represent all of the millions of people who got fucked uh, in in by this yeah i mean like crash. he he got fucked by the economy collapsing probably because you know he lost his job when the economy imploded but you know as a renter you know he paid on, he paid his rent on his house for as long as the house was owned by his landlord and then the landlord lost the house and so he had to move to a different rental it wasn't like he lost his entire down payment. He had negative equity or anything like that. He wasn't at risk in the way that the stripper was. But you're right. He was the most sympathetic character. You make a choice when you write about the financial crisis from the vantage point of like the men making bets on the who wins and who loses and not on the people that were at, you know, all the millions of people who lost jobs, lost homes, lost equity, lost wealth, and and who many of whom still haven't recovered. And and in a way are like charactered in the mo- caricatured in the film as strippers who just want to have, you know, six houses or something. When a lot of these people were immigrants or people of color who were steered into subprime loans, um, not realizing what they were getting and have, have felt the effects, you know, for a lifetime. And while those banks got bailed out for being stupid or risky or whatever, like none of those people really did. But that's not who you make a movie about. The movie likes to have its cake and eat it a little bit on that front as well. It gets very righteous about the bailouts without ever really grappling with the real-world implications of what would have happened if the banks hadn't got bailed out. Well, I mean, I don't know if we want to do this, but I, I, I could not help, as I watched this film that I liked very much, obviously, directed by Adam McKay, in light of... His most recent movie, which I found to be so awful and so terrible in its, which is to say, don't look up, in its, in its misbegotten uh, portrayal of various confused liberal ideas. To me, it's a good, here's how it can work to do what you're trying to do, and here's like when you really haven't figured it out and how to do it, and uh, it's it's not real, it's an allegory, all that. It's like good version, bad version. Uh, in terms of in terms of getting at big, complicated socio political questions, well or not. Maybe it's because I mean, well, one reason in this movie he had great source material. Like a Michael Lewis book is is very good. I mean, Felix's criticisms aside. Great source material, real characters, and for Don't Look Up, I don't know. He just made it up, I think. No, he just made it up, and again, it's 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 about climate, but it's about an asteroid or, or meteor or whatever it was about. Keeping your your feet at least one foot in the real world is good. I mean, to come back to Succession, which is peripherally an Adam McKay joint, but is really not. I think we can credit him with a certain degree of tonal success there that he helped to sort of shape the tone of the series in a way that was fantastic but that ultimately 
the complexities and the the fact that you don't need to tie every you know character arc ups in a in a nice clean bow or anything like that you know makes succession a much more successful project than either of these two movies but again felix you're comparing uh 30 or 40 hour things to a two-hour thing and that's just an a, a great big apple orange watermelon difference it's fair enough no I'll, I'll i'll accept that did you like the movie felix or could you not get out of your own head to enjoy it maybe i mean maybe that's it maybe i was just too close to it and you know there aren't that many people who watch this movie and see Ryan Gosling and go, "Wait, is he meant to be Greg Lippman?" And there aren't that many people. <laughs> not no, not too many. <laughs> there aren't that many people who are like, "Why are they calling him Lewis Ranieri? Everyone calls him Lou." You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we all. I I when I read a story or see a thing, a movie, whatever, a TV show about some world that I really know. Yeah, it's hard to. It's hard to not find all those flaws it's like the old thing that i think stephen colbert did on his show maybe letterman of having like a dentist on to talk about some the dental portions of some movie that had nothing to do with dentistry and they like wait this is this is not the point um but like for instance the the show newsroom um lots of my friends liked it fine i couldn't stand it you know, because it was so not on in so many ways how hard to agree i i basically I can't watch any movie about journalism. It drives me exactly. up the wall. Exactly. The one scene I hated the most in this movie was because I was at the Wall Street Journal for a little bit of the time during the crisis. And that scene where the two guys go to talk to the KC, the Wall Street Journal reporter, who has this like phenomenal office based in no <laughs> reality. And the guy's like such a jerk to them and is like, I, he says blatantly, like, oh, these are my sources. I would never like turn against them in this way. I can't believe you would expect that of me. Like, that would never, I, I really don't think, I, I don't claim pure knowledge, but it was. It, it was the worst scene. It was the worst scene in a movie. It, it was. was and terrible. then, oh, and I have two kids. Oh, God. Let's go to the press, man. This is a massive story. Who wouldn't publish it? Robert Redford. Shorting the ones that they buy. You don't understand. No, you don't get it. I got it, guys. I got it. I got it. I got it. Well, what am I supposed to do? You want me to write a piece called We're All Fucked? Yes. That's a perfect title. Casey, right now, every bank in town is unloading these shit bonds onto unsuspecting customers, and they won't devalue them until they get them off their books. This level of criminality is unprecedented, even on fucking Wall Street. Jamie, and this is me being honest here, okay? It took me years to build my relationships on Wall Street. No bank or ratings agency is going to confirm a story like this just Whoa. because it comes from two guys in a, sorry, garage band hedge fund that wow. thinks it's the apocalypse. Wow. I thought you were for real, Casey. You know, I have to say I really did. Really? Yeah, Jamie, you try being for real with a three-year-old and a wife getting her master's degree. Like, I'm not going to burn my reputation on your wild hunch. Wow. Wow. Thanks for coming, guys. Totally fucking awesome to see you. Yeah, Casey, I, I've always hated you because you were a prick in college, and you are a prick today. Thanks, Charlie. Still living with your mom? And, by the way, presaging the terrible scene after scene after scene in Don't Look Now in terms of its coolness. Yes! 
Yes, it's really, it's upsetting and it makes you think like, oh, okay, well, this is what everyone thinks of financial journalists. It's, it's a, so I don't know, maybe I reacted to you personally. Uh, I, I hear you. No, I, I just, I just put that, <laughs> I just, I looked away during that. It was, it was a peculiarly terrible scene, that one. Like it was so badly written and badly art directed and clunky and you're like, where did this scene come from? And it served no purpose in the broader narrative of the movie. Like it, it just gets like slot in there with it's never referenced before. It's never referenced uh, afterwards. It's just like he needed his like 90 seconds of bashing the media for no other reason than to bash the media. Well, I think the reason was probably, and, and it's the kind of thing you would shoot. And then at the end, now cut that. Not, we're not going to have that scene or that guy or anything in it. I think he probably included it to show, uh, you know, Richie and Jamie and Charlie to be good guys. Look, they're going to the media. They're going to try to do it. So to your point, to your point about eh, uh, your, your part of your critique of the film is it was making them into heroes, uh, perhaps more than they were, by trying to go to the media who suppresses it. Yeah. And then there's, a, I think there's implicit storyline, like the media missed all of this. And like, by the time those two guys were in the Wall Street Journal offices, the Wall Street Journal was writing about this like every day. It just it's upsetting to me. I don't think these were the only people that saw this coming. The media did not miss the crisis. I can say this as someone who was blogging the crisis from like 2006 onwards. The media wrote about it over and over again. I remember being on like countless terrible panels in the wake of the crisis basically all of which were predicated on this idea so how did the media miss the crisis and i would always just say it didn't i can point you to hundreds of articles where we explained exactly what was going on and the problem was that they were buried in the business section that normal people don't read but we did the media did not miss the crisis we we really were on top of it The other thing this film, it seems to me, did pretty well, given what kind of film it was, especially, is uh, suggest the the anxiety and tension of people in this world making these gigantic financial bets. You know, and it reminded me like, wow, th this is a world I could never have been and could never be, and I could not live with that sort of stress. But whether it's the brilliant, as you said, Emily, the scene of um, Ryan Gosling in the in the in the bathroom making people go away as he's talking about his secret stuff. But just the, the, the various ways in which he and Christian Bale especially are, you know, at the abyss, it could all go asunder. And that was pretty effectively conveyed. It's, it's super interesting because um, what they're all doing, and this is actually explicit in the movie, it's hidden away in one of those like bits of exegesis at the beginning of the movie, but this definitely applies to the um brownfield capital or whatever they were called the two kids um and it also applies to to the bury trade is that they're in the business of making many small losing bets and they know that the bets are almost certain to lose and they will lose money and they will lose money and they will lose money until one day the bet will actually make money and the amount you make on the in the rare occasions when the bait when they make money is so much greater than is so much is so huge that it more than covers all of your losses on the on the on the other bets and 
uh, Michael's friend Malcolm Gladwell wrote the definitive um, article about this, about um, Mark Spitznagel and Nassim Taleb and people like that who do exactly that strategy. And it is genuinely psychologically almost unbearable to walk into work and lose money. And then the next day you walk into work and you lose money. And the next day you walk into work and you lose money. And you're losing your investors' money. No, it seemed like so much worse than the hate mail that he was getting and like his mentors turning against him. Um, so much worse than anything you experience as a journalist because all the, all the money that's involved too. Um, but apparently Michael Burry was one of the investors that basically helped spur <laughs> the GameStop hysteria because he had written several letters um, to GameStop management encouraging them to do like stock buybacks and this and that and saying that they were undervalued and they could do this and that. Um, and so he was one of like the the names cited by um, Roaring Kitty, you know, when he made his first... Deep fucking value, as he was known on Reddit, yeah. Yes, deep fucking value when he first started drawing attention to the stock. So Burry did play a role in... Um, in creating the meme stock mania, although he he made money off GameStop stock, not as much as he could have if he had stayed in longer. Apparently, also he is currently betting against, or he was uh, this fall betting against uh, Tesla. And to my point of the fact that these GameStop hordes probably made briefly Michael Burry in the as you describe it, their their avatar. Oh, look, he was that guy. Huh? It's characters. It's it's like yeah, he's he's the renegade saying this, you know, this thing. I mean, it, they, they are. I don't know. Not that. Yeah, that actually that doesn't those... make any sense if he's like a big short and they hate shorts, but they're all see. But they don't hate shorts. shorts. They hate <laughs> they they hated shorts today. But you know, I mean, that's that's my point is that they don't hate shorts in some. But way al- that- but also Barry by nature and like the reason why he had a significant hedge fund as we open the movie is because he was a value investor and he in the and the way the valuing the way the value investing worked and the way that he made all of his money up until this was like he would buy undervalued stocks and then they would go up and he would sell them and then he would make money and this is the main reason why his investors were like what the fuck are you doing when he got into subprime was it was a massive strategy shift. Like he was never involved in the bond market at all. He was always a stock guy. There you go. That makes wow. sense. Yeah, it was. That's interesting. That wasn't his. His. Everyone talks about their thesis. This is our thesis. Our investing thesis. Really, it's just about making money, and then you create the thesis. But also, there. like you have to understand that from the point of, and, and obviously the Michael Burry's investors, you know, are represented in a very um, unsympathetic way in this movie. But if you are a hedge fund investor, you know, you are you are not just invested in one hedge fund. You are invested in a portfolio of hedge funds and you have one hedge fund that's doing deep value investing in the, in the U.S. stock market. You have another hedge fund that's doing commodities. You have another hedge fund that's doing emerging markets. You have another hedge fund that's doing credit opportunities. You're hedging. And then, and, 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 <laughs> then you, and you like diversify across strategies in that way. And then you wake up one morning and what you thought was a, value investing US stock market fund suddenly becomes a highly leveraged credit opportunities fund. You're like, wait, hang on a sec. That is not what I invested in. Let If I wanted to invest in that, I would have invested in, you know, Magnetar. Please give me my money back. And that's an actually reasonable thing to say. All right. We will end this uh, with a letter grade. Emily, what would you give this movie? I give this movie... 
an A minus. I just wish it it had been made with women in mind a little bit more. So that's why I gave it the minus. Not for not, any other. Not reason. a lot of great female characters in this. In this no, movie. they're either. It has to be said. I wrote down the okay. The men get to be brilliant, awkward, damaged, bimbos, corrupt, stupid, mean, empathetic, tragic. That's all the characters, character traits men get to display in this film. And the women are wives. They are bimbos, pretty. Oh, the Morgan Stanley woman. Corrupt. The Morgan Stanley woman. What is she's just? She's just there to be. She's maybe like a, a wifey kind of character, basically. The women are mostly wifey kind of characters or not wifey characters. Yeah, like why, why did we need her to be like pregnant and breast pumping? That was probably not yeah. necessary. Why did we need that? I, I don't understand. I think it was meant at the end to communicate the Steve Carell character had become more empathetic. Because in the beginning, he's just like, oh, are you expecting? And then cuts off her answer. And then the end is like, are you having fun being a mom? And then waits for her answer. We're supposed to understand that this means Steve Carell has gone through something, you know? That's why. She's a device. All these women are like device characters for the men. And so it's a really good movie, and I really enjoyed it. And it's okay that it, like, doesn't perfectly explain the financial crisis, but I wish, I don't know, yeah, I wish it had done a little bit more in the female realm. realm. But that's, it's Adam McKay, so what are you going to do? I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a B minus, I think. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there with, the final scene of Steve Carell sitting in his penthouse on Park Avenue overlooking Central Park and like winning and and it just and, and on also feeling like bad as he's on the phone to Jeremy Strong that like the banks aren't collapsing, that somehow it would make him feel better if the banks all collapsed and weren't bailed out. And you're like, oh fuck off. And that is and that's like the the message of the film, yeah, fuck off, Adam. Okay, so I'm, I, yeah, I'm giving it a a B minus. Kurt, you get to. Well, I'm happy. I'm one of the reasons this. I'm glad we spent the last hour doing this. Is I've been schooled in in in, <laughs> in these in these legitimate critiques. Uh-huh. Yet, if Emily, if you hadn't said A minus, if if you had said B plus, I I was thinking eh, maybe I should say A minus because it's not perfect, but nothing's perfect. So A. With the with the caveat that A plus is possible. <laughs> what well, is is margin call A plus? I have to watch it again to tell you that. But you know, maybe it would be an A plus candidate. So thank you, Kurt, for liking this movie. We needed a foil. We needed someone to defend it. You were magnificent at that. And yeah, we'll be back on Saturday with a regular slate money. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.